Thank you, James. Yeah, it, would, it would surprise me and scare me, probably. The printer might die from all the printing of notes. You never know. Uh, James has forgotten the children. How could you forget the wonderful children? Crash group, sparklers group, and youth are all going out at this point. Thank you very much. I, I want, we've been doing a series called Limitless, uh, looking through the book of Col- Colossians. I'm going to say Colossians then, which was a new book I've just invented. Uh, Colossians. And uh, Glenn was helping us last week with that and just looking through uh, verse by verse some principles that were really important and really practical uh, for us. And I want to go into the next little slot. Um, and the whole theme today is around freedom. Now, I've just realized during the um, worship that I've got the wrong kind of picture on my, my slide because I've got something from Les Mis because um, just thinking about freedom. But I could, should, of course, have had Mel Gibson in Braveheart shouldn't I, with that slightly dodgy accent and the painting on his face and crying, freedom, as he did. But I haven't. I've got this instead. Uh, and the BBC is doing a new adaptation of Victor Hugo's uh, book. Has anybody read the book, the unabridged version of the book? You have. Congratulations. I haven't. I thought sitting through the musical was enough, the film version. But apparently it's one of the longest novels in English, uh, 1,500 pages. Uh, the French version, has anybody read it in French? 1,928 pages apparently, but uh, no, not 20, I added that because that's the year the church was founded, 1,900 pages. Um, that's amazing, isn't it? That's quite a long book. If you thought Lord of the Rings was a bit of a trudge during some bits, then uh, that's even longer, but amazing. And it tells the story of the uprisings in Paris in 1832, and uh, Victor Hugo, the novelist, witnessed some of these scenes, and he's writing about it um, there, and he's writing about these sort of variety of people with, who love and lose uh, and their battles for life in a very difficult situation. If you've not seen the film or been to see the musical or watched the latest adaptation, um, then I won't give away the ending, but the name Les Miserables uh, probably gives away a bit of the feel of uh, Les Miserables and what's really going on there. Um, I, I did watch a little bit of the recent episode and uh, which was a bit on telly. Judith was watching it, and I found myself just waiting for them to sing uh, and was quite put off that they hadn't, having spent the entire film wondering why they were singing everything. Uh, and, and so that you, you will notice that if you do watch the latest one the BBC have done, there's not a lot of singing in it. Um, but it's unpacking this story of people going through quite a difficult time uh, and their loves and losses and, and, and just this battle for life. And... and freedom, I guess, is at the heart of this. Um, In the French Revolution sometime earlier, 1789, in a document called the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, we get this phrase, liberté, égalité, and fraternity. And this thought that liberty consists of being able to do anything that doesn't directly harm other people, that's where that comes from, means that In our culture, I've got the right to drive up to the speed limit and I can drive as slow as I like until I become a nuisance to other people. And then I get in trouble, don't I? I can't go go above the speed limit because that's breaking the law. I can't become a nuisance to other people uh, because that's uh, a hindrance to others. You can park in certain designated places unless you've got a blue badge where you can put your car where you jolly well like. Um, the best I've seen in Sunbridge Wells was just 
around the traffic lights, round, going around Meadow Road. And uh, I was pulling around to come to church. And there's the car, multi-story car park there, just by the post office. I don't know if you know what I mean, right in the center. So I've pulled out the post offices on my right. And there's a car parked at the traffic lights. And I thought, okay, they must just be stopped for a moment. There's been an emergency. No, as I, as I had to pull around into the other lane to get around, there was a blue badge on the front. That's fabulous, isn't it? Just the audacity to be able to park your car right at a set of traffic lights and cause chaos for everybody. Um, but there you go. But you're allowed to because you've got liberty and freedom. But our liberty gets complicated. What about my right to drive at all? in a polluting vehicle. Am I, am I allowed to drive my polluting vehicle around? Uh, some of you, like me, will have had a letter from London Authority recently just telling me that my car is going to cost me more if I drive it into central London because it doesn't qualify with certain emissions regulations. You may have had the same letter come through recently. I've got liberty to go and drive, but it's going to cost me uh, because it's considered to be a pollutant for other people. Or what about our shopping? When we go shopping, we, we're free to buy whatever we can afford. But we're increasingly aware these days that our consumer choices have an impact on other people. Where the food that we're buying, how far it's traveled around the world, or how it's been grown, was it fairly traded? Has it, has it been produced at a cost to the people who are growing it? Or, or am I bearing the cost? Has the item I'm, I'm buying got palm oil in, in which case potentially it's been... Uh, kind of produced at the cost of massive swathes of rainforest. And so there's a, an added cost to the product I'm getting. What's, what's happening with the product I'm buying? Is it covered in plastic? Where is that going to end up? What about the conditions of the animals that are uh, being farmed if I'm eating meat-based products? All these complicated choices, and we're increasingly aware that our freedom has an impact on other people. There's a cost to our freedom. And so sometimes we can be kind of caught up in choice paralysis perhaps where we're not quite sure what to choose for the best because every choice seems to have a consequence and you end up going, oh, blow it, I'll just have what I wanted anyway, which probably isn't the best thing to do, but sometimes you can just end up in that place. We're aware that our choices are not arbitrary. Our freedom isn't exercised in a vacuum. It's lived out in society amongst other people. I used to have a dream as a kid that I could fly. I've discovered I can't. I used to fly out of my bedroom, down the stairs, out the front door, which somehow opened for me, and I could go wherever I wanted. I've discovered that gravity is quite persistent. Um, it kind of keeps us down, which is quite useful most of the time. I I'm free to dream I can fly. I'm free to invest in technology to help me, but I'm actually not free to... Uh, break the laws of gravity on a routine basis um, because that would affect everybody else at the same time. My willpower is not enough. What about the freedom to think and act as I like? How free are we, really? What am I free to do? What am I not free to do? I want to talk about limitless freedom from the book of Colossians today. And we're going to see the freedom that Jesus has won for us and some immediate challenges that come to that freedom and how we need to respond today. So, firstly, we're going to read from Colossians chapter 2. I've got the points up on the screen rather than the passage, because the passage I'm reading from and basing it on is very long. So if you want to reference this, it's Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 9 onwards, which says this, For in Christ 
All the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you're also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's a few points in there, and I just want to run through those to show us the wonderful freedom that we have as Christians. Our freedom starts with Jesus. He's the reason we're free. Our freedom is in him. It's because of him that we have any freedom at all. It starts and ends with Jesus. These verses tell us that we've been brought from having a partial life into fullness of life. In Christ, you've brought in, been brought into fullness. We don't need to live half a life. We don't need to live with, with no awareness of God. We can live a life fully and abundantly in, in the fullness of all that God has for us. We've been brought out of our old life into a new one. Where our old self was ruled by the flesh, that's been put off. And it's all because of Jesus. All because of what he's done. We'll be celebrating communion in a moment. And, and that's a wonderful way of acknowledging that everything we have is because of Jesus. You know, I, I don't think we understand what our freedom's worth. As a, as a country, we pause um, once a year on Remembrance Sunday and we remember those who've paid with their lives for political and military freedom. But I'm not sure we're aware of what our freedom costs on a day-by-day-by-day basis. The privileges we enjoy. I guess as a, as a parent of two young adults uh, now, I, I only became aware of the cost of parenting me when my kids got to a certain point. I think I'd taken it all for granted up until that point. Sort of been aware that having a kid's a bit of a hassle. Um, but you're not quite aware of the investment your parents make into your life until your own kids get to a certain point and you go, oh, oh, that's what it was like. Oh, poor them. (laughs) And you begin to realize, because suddenly you're in a different position, you have a different perspective on your freedom, and and I don't think we'll ever know quite what it costs us to buy, what it costs to buy our freedom, to get our freedom. You know, as a child playing, you don't value your freedom until the full-term school starts. And you start full-time, day after day after day at school. As a child in school, You don't value your school holidays until work starts. And you're looking back going, oh, do you remember when? Those six-week breaks. Oh, unless you go to university, of course, then you get months off. (laughs) But work starts and you think, oh, what happened to my freedom? Where's it gone? There are a few people in the Bible who realize the price that's been paid. A woman washing Jesus' feet, sobbing. And there's a conversation going on about her. And Jesus highlights the price that's been paid and her realization of her sin being forgiven. We're we're free from death. 
We've been made alive with Christ. He's forgiven our sins, cancelling any charge that was against us. And all of this is because of the cross. This is amazing. I, I, I want us to pause. I know you know this. And I know it's cold in here. And I'm, I'm not picking, looking at anybody as I look at body language. But, but feel excited, even if you are not able to look it today. Feel excited about the one who paid your price and won you freedom. Not because I'm preaching out I want a response. But because he's worthy of all our praise and adoration and delight. Because he's won us freedom. He's disarmed the powers that were arrayed around us and against us and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. There's no condemnation, no death, no charge, and your old self is gone. You're free. But immediately we're free. There's a challenge. And actually, I want to go back a verse in Colossians to chapter 2, verse 8. And, and this is from is that verse, Paul writing to the Colossians says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So he's going to go on and talk about freedom, but his, his run into that is to say, See that no one takes you captive. This is why I'm going to talk about freedom, because there's a battle going on, and, and there are forces that want to take you captive. True freedom is robust it's wonderful, it's strong, it's powerful, it's releasing, it's life-giving, but it's under attack. Man and woman were created free. People were created free in the beginning. And their freedom was strong, their freedom was powerful, their freedom was empowering, they had relationship with God, they had complete freedom. And it immediately came under attack. Our freedom's regained in Christ, but again, it comes under attack. We can look uh, at four areas where we can come under attack in freedom. Number one, religion. Number two, super spirituality. Number three, rules. And number four, surrender. You'll get, we'll, we'll see all of those again. So if you're trying to take notes, we're going to go through this one by one. Religion, super spirituality, rules, and surrender. And those are the four things that Paul challenges. Number one, religion. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things which were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Uh, religion hooks many people because it makes sense. It, it makes sense that if, if I'm not right with God, I should do something about it and I should keep, the, keep to a religious pattern and, and go to certain ceremonies and festivals and things, and that will make God somehow pleased with me. And Paul's tackling this thought here that that's what should happen and saying, actually, he's picking up some really punchy items because he's writing to a group of people who weren't Jewish and he's picking up all the important markers of Jewish spirituality. He's already talked about circumcision, but he's going to write here about the holy days the religious festivals, the new moon celebrations, or the Sabbath, or what they eat or drink. All of these things were markers, if you were Jewish, of the fact that you were Jewish. That They marked you out from the rest of the population. When everyone else was working on a Sabbath day, a Saturday, you weren't. You weren't doing any work. No trading. You were trusting in God. When people were having a feast, you weren't eating the same food. You actually weren't at the feast. You were eating your own food with your own family in a certain way because you were God's people. 
Paul, a Jew, is writing to these Gentiles who weren't Jews saying, it doesn't matter about any of that stuff. Don't let anyone judge you if you don't keep the Sabbath or you eat what you like or you don't go to any of the religious festivals. This is mind-blowing. Just, it, it's as bad as a pastor of a church saying, don't worry about all that praying and coming to church and paying your tithes. So don't worry about it all. You'd be sitting there going, what? This is the revolutionary kind of, that's how it would have sounded, Paul writing this, if you were Jewish and you're, you're hearing these words, you're like, really? That's, that's kind of an affront. All these things I've done, I value and they're important. And suddenly, these guys don't need to do them. That's true. Because all of them pointed to Jesus. I tell you what, there's a day coming when you won't need to go to church or tithe or, sh- or share the gospel or any of that stuff. Why? Because th- it's, it's like all those things pointed to Jesus. Now everything we do, coming and being part of God's family together and, and contributing into that and giving and going out to tell other people, they point towards a day. We do it because it's pointing towards a day when Jesus is coming and he's enthroned and we're with him forever. And so we've got these stages, all of this stuff points towards the first coming of Christ. All that we do now points towards his coming again and us being with him. We're in between the ages, but there's a time when everything changes again. And Paul's saying, at this moment, everything's changed. You don't need to do all this stuff that went before because Jesus came and changed everything. Now, now we might think none of this applies to us, but some of us are old enough to remember conversations around going shopping on a Sunday and whether you should or shouldn't. Or going to the cinema on a Sunday. Now, you might just sneak it in the middle of the week, but on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, I've had conversations with people who go to a seaside town and aren't sure if they can buy an ice cream on a Sunday. Why? Because it's the Lord's Day. Great. And if that's your conviction, stick with it. Don't change it. But read what the Bible says. Paul's saying, don't let anyone judge you because of a Sabbath day and what you do or don't do on it. This is shocking, isn't it? It, I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. You can find it. Colossians 2. Having a day of rest is a good thing. Having a day of given over to God is a very good thing. Does it draw you away from God? No, it highlights your relationship with God. It's a really good thing to do, to keep a day separate and not work on it and not do any other stuff and say, God, it's all for you. We're living for you. It's a great thing to do. The problem comes when we make it a law requiring others to obey to certain things that we require them to do. So the principle gets lost in the law. Jesus saves us from that. What what should we look out for? Well, basically anybody requiring us to keep religious uh, things happening that don't point us to Jesus. Anything that doesn't lead us straight to Jesus, we should question it. And just see, am am I doing this because it's religion or am I doing it because actually it's leading me to Jesus? Leading me to him. Uh, Secondly, super spirituality. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head. 
that's Jesus, from whom the whole, whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. The first challenge our freedom faces is religion. The idea that you should con- con- conform and contain your religion within certain practices you have to do. And Paul writes and says, focus on Jesus. Secondly, super spirituality. Maybe you've never come across this, but some of us will have come across really, really spiritual people. And, and I don't mean the amazingly godly ones who just, they are genuinely humble. And you think, wow, there's something special about them. But, but I mean the ones that other people rave about and say, you've got to go and hear this person. They've, had, they've seen the most amazing things. And you come across and there's books and teaching and all sorts of things about their visions and their this and their that and this great revelation they've had and, and you've never heard anything like it before. You've never read anything like it in the Bible. You've never heard anybody else preach like it. And suddenly there's just this great stuff that you think, wow, they've got a unique insight into God. When you hear that kind of thing, be very careful. It's a confusing phrase. We're not quite sure, the scholars aren't quite sure what worship of angels means here because actually it could be worship with angels. But there's certainly this focus on angels, this this focus on delighting in false humility. Again, there's a debate around what that means, but we're very clear about what the results are. Second line in says, such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. So if, if theories and, uh, and revelations are incredibly detailed, just be a little careful if it's not all about Jesus. Uh, secondly, they're puffed up with idle notions. If, if actually there's an element of pride there, be very careful. Thirdly, I think it says they go up by their unspiritual mind and they've lost connection with the head. This is the greatest shame of all, that someone might lose connection with Jesus. This is a danger to all of us. The danger for all of us, I guess, is that we're so hungry for God that we can end up chasing experiences or chasing revelation or chasing things that aren't Jesus but are the latest thing. I want to be part of the latest move of God. I want to be part of whatever God's doing. But I want to keep my eyes fixed on Him, not on anything else. And there's a danger of pride. Now, it's easy to spot pride in others, isn't it? You ever notice that? But it's much harder to spot it in yourself. But, but many groups of Christians are, uh, suffer with this. That If we're the latest, greatest thing, we look down on other people who aren't anymore. If we sense that God's doing something special here, we can look down on traditional churches or other groups and say, well, God's doing something here and he's not doing it there. We need to be really, really careful. Because our moment of being in the spotlight doesn't last long. And actually what happens, God delights in going to that place that's been put down and resurrecting it and causing life to grow. And suddenly what was the hottest, greatest, latest thing no longer is and God's at work somewhere else doing something new and something fresh. And that's the exciting thing. We've got to be really careful that we keep focusing on Jesus because God will not allow his glory to be shared by another. He he wants people to see the king, people to see Jesus and people to be connected in him. So let's be careful that we're not written off, disqualified by super spirituality. One more thing on that really quickly. Writing off, being written off, what could that mean? 
What, what could it mean to be disqualified? Well, I think it, it means several things. It could mean that you've come across folk who just seem so spiritual that you've written yourself off. And you said, you know what? I'm not like them. I, I don't hear God like they do. They must have something I haven't got. And you back away from Jesus, somehow believing that you're a second-class citizen, somehow believing that there are a special group of people who have a special connection with God and you're not it. Be very careful. I think we may just have been disqualified by super-spirituality. God has called each and every one of us to walk with him and live with him. So if you're feeling that you're not good enough, that you're not worthy enough, that God doesn't speak to you in the same way. Just keep looking to Jesus. Don't be distracted by anything else. Let me move on. Free of rules. Freedom from rules. Rules seem like a really good idea. Back to parenting. When you're a parent, rules seem like a good idea. When you're a kid, less of a good idea. But we know that they're a good thing to have some rules. And the, the Pharisees took the, the religious teachers of the, of the law as well, took the rules that were in the Old Testament and wanted to make sure that nobody broke them. And so to protect people from breaking them, set up some more laws that were harder and slightly more rigorous so that you didn't break the other laws that were God's laws. Uh, kind of, it was described as a, a fence at the edge of a cliff. It's that sort of thing that you don't go, no, you're not meant to go off the edge of the cliff, so you put a fence up. So you don't even go over the fence to get to the edge of the cliff. Well, some of the Pharisees' rules were a bit like a fence before the fence before the edge of the cliff. You know what I mean? A and, and we can end up in that situation too, where we have rules that seem like a really good idea. The problem we've got, and, and there's a load of rules here that are listed in the scripture, um, is that the rules don't actually help us conquer our evil desires. That's the problem. We're not quite sure what these rules are that Paul's talking about. He, he, he mentions here, um, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The rules that Paul's talking about seem wise and wonderful and disciplined and worshipful, but actually they're not leading people to Christ. Um, let me illustrate it like this. Overcoming greed isn't achieved by not tasting food. Overcoming lust isn't achieved by someone wearing a hijab or a full cover. It's, it's not achieved by that. Overcoming anger isn't overcome by not speaking. Put it another way, excessive fasting can lead you to be worse off than you were before you began if you end up being proud about how well you're doing fasting. Does that make sense? Well, you look down on other people because you're... So the, the rules, the regulations, the requirements don't necessarily lead us to Christ by themselves. They do bring comfort to some people. Comfort that perhaps we're under control, that we're in control, that we're, we're going to make this work. But man-made rules at best are good ideas. They don't necessarily bring us closer to Jesus. 
So let me give you another illustration. Jesus says in his teaching, if you say to someone, you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. In danger of the fire of hell. So, so what do we do with that? Well, we just make sure we never call someone a fool. And we've kept the rule. So they're an idiot, that person over there. A nutter. A, they're, they're useless. No good. Good for nothing. I didn't use that word that Jesus told me not to use. Now, I've kept the rule, but I've broken the principle. You see, in my, my enacting that out, I've not actually been brought closer to Jesus. I've not fixed my heart. Years ago, when I was a, a teenager and a Christian in a great Christian youth group, there was some teaching going around that um, was based on a good principle. And the principle was this, that you need to be really careful what you're listening to. We need to be really careful about what, what's going in. And it was put into practice that actually the encouragement was you shouldn't really listen to non-Christian music. They only listen to Christian music. So the whole group of us went back home and kind of threw out our cassettes and broke up our records. Records. Oh, remember them? <laughs> the old gramophone. No, it wasn't that bad. Um, but got rid of all our music. I was like, God, I want you and nothing else. Now the principle's great. And actually, I didn't lose much. Just bought the records again. A few years later, when I realized that it was, I was free to do so, and that it was okay. But that principle can become a law that becomes a rule that leads us no closer to Jesus than we were before we started. Because we get hung up on keeping the rules. Paul's actually writing to say, look, you're free from keeping these rules. Because they don't actually make any difference, really. So, so what do we do? I need to wrap this up. What do we do? We live free. I did tell you there's one more coming, and it's, it's in this passage here. One more challenge to our living free. How do we do it? How do we live free? Well, we live free from the law, and we live free from super spirituality, and we live free from religion by doing a couple of things. Number one, we remember, it's not on the screen, but we remember. If you're taking notes, write down remember. We remember what's happened to us. We remember that we've been raised with Christ, that he took my place. We remember that. Secondly, we set our hearts on the things above. We set our hearts on Jesus. We set our desires on Jesus. We set our thinking on Jesus. This is how we stay free. Number one, we remember what God has done for us. Number two, we set our hearts on Jesus and our minds on things above. Where is our attention? This is why prayer and reading our Bibles and coming to worship and focusing on God's presence is important. Not because those things are an end to themselves, not because we set rules up and keep to the rules, but because we want our hearts to be set on things above. We want to see Jesus. And then the rest of the action comes in these last two bullet points. Um, in my notes, the, the fourth challenge to our freedom is that we surrender it. Remember, the first was religion. Second, super spirituality. Third is rules. The fourth is that we just surrender it. You see, being free from the rules doesn't mean that I can do whatever my innards desire. Whatever I want to do, I just get on and do. That's not true freedom. 
And, and if you've lived like that for any period of time, you discover very quickly that when I tr- live to satisfy my own desires, the things that I think I can do in my freedom actually enslave me. The things I think I'm free to do and I pursue actually bind me and chain me up and I get more and more and more stuck. What my flesh desires still traps me and still puts me in chains. And it's really easy. Paul writes, he's got a load of things he writes about here, that we can voluntarily surrender our freedom. He, He writes about sexual immorality and impurity and lust, evil desires and greed And he goes on to say, you used to walk in these ways. He's writing to the Colossians and saying, these aren't unfamiliar things. You used to live like that, but don't do it anymore. Put those things to death. Don't mess about with them. Don't flirt with them. Don't play around with them. Don't give them space. Don't give them room. Don't play with them. Don't become familiar with them. Put them to death. That's that's strong language. And I'm not sure we do that very well. I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for anybody else here. But I think so often I become familiar with some of those things. I can justify them and think it's not that bad, really. It'll be okay. But actually Paul's encouragement and challenge is that we don't just give away our freedom. We don't just surrender it for the latest whim and fancy. We don't just give it away and because we think we're using our freedom to do things, but actually we're just abandoning it. And we're picking up the chains of whatever it might be. His list here is sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed. Uh, and he goes on and talks about anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language and lying to each other. That's the issues he's writing about here. It might be something different in your life. But so quickly we can surrender our freedom and pick up these chains again and think we're living free when we're not. And you know you're not by what it does to our hearts. A really positive thing we can also do just as I wrap up is to put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So what have we seen today? Well, we've seen that freedom is costly to win. We can't pay for it. We can't buy it. But hear me, we mustn't give it away. We mustn't give it away. Freedom cost Jesus everything. And we might be challenged by religion to become more religious and do more religious things. If that's you, my encouragement today is that you don't need to be more religious and do more religious practices to see Jesus more. Secondly, You might have been impressed by super spirituality. The latest and greatest experience or the latest thing, there's nothing wrong with hungering after more of God. Nothing wrong with it. But if you've ended up in a place where you felt disqualified from Jesus, you felt second class as a Christian, you felt like you don't measure up and somehow God God can't use you because you're not like those people, then you've surrendered your freedom or it's been taken away from you. Stop. Don't let super spirituality rob you of your freedom. Thirdly, rules. Rules are okay. They keep us from the fence, which is the fence before the fence at the edge of the cliff. I get all that. But we can end up killing ourselves with rules, particularly when we apply them to other people and say, you should live like this. We're free 
from man-made rules. Why? Because they don't give life. But we mustn't surrender our freedom to start picking up stuff that Jesus died for. Let's leave it there and let's live for him. I'd like us to pray together. And I'd like us to to pray because I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray for myself. And I'd like to give an opportunity for you to respond. I know we've got communion coming in a moment. Um, But my opportunity to respond is this. If you would like me particularly to pray for you, because you're aware that religion has played its part and you've had some of your freedom robbed by religion, or you've had some of your freedom robbed by super spirituality or by rules and their impact on your life, or because you've been picking up some of this stuff and engaging in it that really is of your old nature and needs to be put to death, and you'd like to find new freedom today in any of those areas, then would you stand and we'll pray. That's a broad appeal, four different things. So it could be any one of those. But if you'd like increasing freedom and you're aware of any of those challenges in your life today, let's stand together and we'll pray. And I want to pray very simply because freedom cost him everything. And I don't want to lose it. I know it's under attack. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died to set us free. And that freedom has come under challenge in our own lives. It's come under challenge by all sorts of things where we felt that we don't measure up and we don't compare and we've got to and we've got to. And there's a list that we give ourselves of how we have to comply and we lose our sense of freedom in you. Lord, we can't add to the freedom you've given us, but we can give it away. And Lord, maybe for some who are standing, there's been areas of temptation where we've been giving away our freedom, been surrendering it to, to live a life that's not the one you've called us to live. Lord, in any of those areas, we pray for your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, now that we've seen you and seen your word, that we would live freely. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that you bought for us And we pray for life. And we pray for liberty. And we pray uh, that every chain that's come to bind us would be broken in Jesus' name. That as your people, we would live free lives. That we would look to you, Lord Jesus, and not look to anybody else. We would look to you and see you. And we would lift our eyes to see the King. Lord, that our hearts would be set on things above, not on earthly things. We thank you, Lord, that you can and do set the captive free. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Do take your seats again. Thank you.